0: Welcome to our newest episode of the Lebanese Physicians uh, Podcast. And today uh, we will be talking about artificial intelligence with Dr. Uh, Cyril Zekka. Dr. Zekka actually just graduated last year from the American University of Beirut, Faculty of Medicine, and currently is at uh, Stanford uh, doing a uh, research year in cardiothoracic uh, surgery. The reason we invited Dr. Zekka today is to discuss the role of artificial intelligence in medicine because Dr. Zekar has been involved uh, with a lot of projects while he was in Lebanon, and currently while he's in uh, the San Francisco uh, area. He was actually director of the Artificial Intelligence and Medicine Program at the American University of Beirut. Uh, welcome, Cyril, to the podcast.
1: Uh, thank you so much for the introduction. Happy to be here. So, so Cyril, I saw it when
0: I was looking at your bio, I saw that actually uh, after finishing high school, you came and did your pre-medical studies in the US at Boston College. Uh, can you tell us why did you made that choice and uh, came to the U.S.? And then can you tell us why you decided to move back to Lebanon to do your medical school at AUB afterwards?
1: So there wasn't much to it. So all of us, since we were kids, uh, wanted to go to the U.S. for, uh, for undergrad. Uh, we actually grew up in the U.S. for about six to seven years of our life. So it was a natural return uh, back to the U.S. And at first, actually, I went to the University of Virginia for a year before I transferred to Boston College because of some... Uh, events at the university and i was personally just attracted by the programs there that weren't specifically offered at home so i was interested since i was a kid i was interested in computer science and the programs outside are more attractive and i wanted to juggle between computer science biology stuff like that so those options were offered to me outside so that's basically the reason why we went to boston college what was your specialty in boston college um, originally I started out in biology but eventually I minored in computer science as well but most of my my years to be honest most of my years in undergrad were spent uh, programming so instead of the being your typical pre-medical student I would sit at the back of the class program through the entire class and then just catch up on powerpoints a day or two before the tests so uh, I wasn't like heavily involved in biology but it was still something i was interested uh, interested in so that's basically what that's happened okay. and, and
0: why do you decide so since so where do you grow up in the u.s actually which part of the u.s did you grow up in uh west, west virginia, virginia out of all states west virginia yeah all right Char- charleston
1: or yeah charleston okay okay
0: yeah and 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 then why did you decide to go to medical school at ab and not do medical school in the u.s
1: Honestly, that was a bit of a last minute decision. I actually wasn't planning on doing medical school. I was hoping to pursue a PhD in computer science. Uh, but at the time I had a mentor at Boston College and I approached him with my like sort of dilemma. I was like, hey, I'm interested in doing computer science and applying it to healthcare, but I'm also interested in healthcare as well. And he's like, to be honest, uh, doing an MD is going to open a lot more doors for you than just being a PhD in computer science, trying to approach uh, healthcare. People don't see that as People won't see you as having expertise in medicine if you're coming from the outside. So uh, by that time, it was I think December in uh, in of the year. That means AUB was one of the only medical schools that was open. My sister was already at AUB. She's a year older than me. She also went to medical school at AUB. My family was in Lebanon, so it was like a whole lot of decisions that pointed me to AUB. And uh, AUB has such a great reputation outside of of Lebanon as well. So I've uh, we even had some people refer it. To refer to it as the Harvard of the Middle East, so it was kind of a no-brainer situation. It Was like AUB is the right place for me.
0: Yep. And and then you joined AUB, and how did you? Because, because AUB, I remember, I, I did my medical school there. Like first two years were pretty hard, and you're always studying and stuff like that. So how did you find the time to uh, be interested and start your uh, artificial intelligence
1: program there? Same deal. I did as when I was an undergrad. Uh, a lot of the time I would spend my time like or classes during lectures, just programming away, thinking of different ideas, different projects, coding them up, writing a blog post about them. And that would attract interest from uh, people outside of Lebanon. Eventually, like some of my projects attract the attention of some big companies in AI. So they tried a couple of times to actually hire me out of medical school to go join their companies. But I told them like I was adamant on continuing my medical education. At one point, I was confident enough in my abilities and my projects that I approached a few of the deans at AUB and told them about, "Hey, like, uh, medicine has a huge potential. In medicine, let's open up an AI program in medicine." So I also approached one of the people who tried to hire me, and I told him, "Hey, like, I'm trying to open this program at AUB AI in medicine." And then he was like, "All right, let's fund you." So it was a very quick process. We decided on the on the program, but we were going to change the medical program to make it more uh, amenable to uh, teaching medical students the program, what AI is about, in general, just AI education in the medical program. And that's that was basically the start of the program. I had to make several presentations to several deans, convinced the final big dean, and uh, the rest is history. Great. And so what kind of projects did you start while you were in medical school? Can you tell us a bit about your AI projects? Uh, so one of my earliest ones was actually generating realistic mammograms for medical education. So uh, Dr. Hina Berjawi is actually one of, probably one of my m- best mentors at AUBMC. She was also my LC mentor. So she was in charge of guiding me through med school, giving me advice, making sure I was all right throughout medical school. And she happened, she ha- she was a breast radiologist and now she's, I think, the chair of the radiology department at AUB. But thanks to her, I got really interested in radiology. And I realized that a lot of the time when uh, you're a radiology intern, the way you learn something is through exposure. So I didn't feel like that was the best way to learn something, because if you're not exposed to a certain disease as much as other other diseases, you're not gonna be as good as diagnosing it later on. Those are considered, or those are called miss errors So I had the idea of generating mammograms uh, using ai so basically you can tell the ai generate a mammogram with a lesion at this specific spot make it speculated etc so and that in that way i could if i ever wanted to or if someone ever wanted to teach a, a radiology intern what a specific disease looked like they could just generate it and those mammograms were of such high quality that radiologists at UB couldn't tell them apart uh from uh from the real ones so it was more of like random guessing and even more than that, you can now whenever you're doing a machine learning uh, project, if you don't have enough classes, you have class imbalances. So there's not enough of a certain class or a disease class, you can actually use these algorithms to generate more data for your algorithm. So it's like a two, like a double edged, not double edged, but like two, two, uh, two birds, one stone kind of deal. And uh, so that was the first project uh, it went by really well, it was pretty successful. Uh, the next one was I think in uh, med three. Uh, I'm talking about the projects that worked. There were a lot of projects that didn't work. Uh, In med three, uh, I went into surgery and I fell in love. And despite uh, reading up on all the surgeries, the complications, procedures, et cetera, I first stepped into the OR. I had no clue what was going on. I was like, all right, I have no clue what this organ is, what this artery is. I have no clue what's going on. So I thought to myself, there has to be a better way to do this. So I gathered a bunch of my friends. I'm like, hey, like, uh, we picked an easy surgery, so a cholecystectomy, and I told him, like, hey, all right, so this is the liver, this is the artery, this is the gallbladder, uh, I want you to take a bunch of these frames and draw uh, the outlines of the liver, draw the outlines of this artery, draw the outlines of the gallbladder. When we gathered enough data, I trained an algorithm to actually outline those or segment those structures in real time during surgery, so as you're doing surgery, uh, students are able to see which uh, organs are which which arteries are which etc and that also has the added benefit of um kind of paving the way towards autonomous surgery since if an algorithm is aware of a surgical scene then it's then able to act on that scene so that was the first stepping stone towards my interest in uh, autonomous surgery all right and, and and have you published any of this data that you've created data hasn't been published. I was actually because I wasn't the one that labeled the data. So I actually encouraged uh, the group, the, the original group to actually pursue publishing of that data set and their labels. But I think they got too caught up in like medical work. And uh, I don't think it ever panned out. And, and so basically what
0: you're doing, what you were you were doing in your medical school years was using AI potentially for like simulation training, right? Like sort of yeah. similar to simulation training, but instead of doing it using a mannequin, basically doing it using AI for both surgeries and mammograms and others. Exactly. All right, wh- wh- t- tell me a bit about the program that was created, AUB, the AI in Medicine uh, program. So, is it still ongoing now that you left and what were what are its goals?
1: All right. So the AI in Medicine program is uh, designed to be this sort of uh, program that you can approach if you have this, this project in artificial intelligence where you want to affect change. Uh, at the hospital by using big data, artificial intelligence to better patient care. We're a bunch of clinicians, uh, a bunch of medical students who who have actually learned or already know how to program. And you pick your own project, pick who you want to work with, get your own data set from the hospital and basically get started. It's ever since I left, um, there's been uh, my colleague, Jada Saf, who's actually uh, taken over. He's currently in Med4, uh, interested in ophthalmology. He's Doing a pretty good job, uh, no complaints here. And it's basically anytime you have a project, even if you're a medical student, you're attending, and you have no knowledge about AI, but you have you think you have a potential project that might work out, approach the center and there are a bunch of students willing to work with you to see that project through. Excellent. And uh yeah, hopefully
0: this this program will. Will continue i mean it's a pretty good program and ai is probably the future at this point so i also saw that you have a patent can you tell us a bit about the patent that you have honestly i
1: wasn't heavily involved in that patent i was just the one guiding jad and uh, uh and throughout the project but i didn't actually do any coding i just proved that this was possible to do uh provided the proof of concept uh minimum viable product but he actually saw the entire project afterwards so it was just detecting keratoconus using OCT image and a bunch of other diseases I think they're adding. I don't think the patent was approved yet. It's still pending. We have a year to submit more paperwork, but it's it's on the way. All right. And uh, what are you doing at Stanford now? Oof. <laughs> I can't go into too much detail. Yeah, just uh, some uh, So we're doing a lot of autonomous surgery. Uh, we've partnered with uh, some of the top people in robotics, actually some robotics companies as well, and we're teaching a bunch of robots to do certain procedures in cardiothoracic surgery. Um, we're also developing a lot of cardiac imaging models, and we're using a lot of these natural language processing, large language models uh, in conjunction to for various clinical applications.
0: Great, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of robotic companies based in the uh, Silicon Valley area. Actually, I've been out there because I do the robotic bronchoscopy, so I've been out to, the JNJ
1: headquarters over there in Silicon Valley that's one of the groups we've been in contact with
0: you have been okay yeah, yeah, yeah. so basically robot robots mostly for surgeries not for pulmonary medicine or for everything
1: honestly the techniques we're developing can be applied to any uh, any companies we've actually been uh, in contact with companies that do obigine uh, procedures uh also palmo palm, palm procedures GI procedures. So the techniques we're developing are actually applicable to to any subspecialty, but since our research is in cardiothoracic surgery, uh, we're just mainly showing the outcomes in CT surgery. But uh, for example, one of the projects we announced is a foundational model in surgery, foundation vision model. So it'll be this vision model that's a computer vision model that's able to uh, outline or segment, uh, predict uh, surgical actions in all types of surgeries. So we recently uh, received funding uh, from Stanford for that as well.
0: So basically, what you, because I'm, a, I'm actually an intervention pulmonologist, so this is my. So basically, what you're trying to do is trying to predict uh, what surgical action should be taken. Let's say for a specific lung nodule, when the surgeon goes in with the robot, right? Uh,
1: it depends on the goal you're trying to achieve. We're creating this model where you can just fine tune it on specific tasks uh, on a specific task. So in your case, it would be as you're doing your bronchoscopy, it would highlight a certain nodule for you uh, that you might possibly miss. Or it might just tell you, all right, these types of nodules tend to be benign. There's no reason to, not in lung, but uh, there's no reason to to take them out. For example, in GI, so it's kind of this uh, autopilot for for sur- for surgical procedures, but not by replacing surgeons by but by augmenting their capabilities and kind of like filtering out the noise so they can focus on what's important.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's even lungs. I think it's important because you're doing a lot of lung cancer screening, CAT scans, and you have a lot of lung nodules. So you go in, there are three lung nodules that might point you out to one of them and say the two others probably are benign. So maybe don't bother biopsying them or don't bother removing them in that case. And that's pretty good. And so, what do you think? So now, I mean, AI is getting very big, and recently everybody's been talking about uh, chat GPT. So, what do you think of that?
1: Uh, honestly i think there's more hype about it in like the general community than there is in the research community uh, the technology itself hasn't changed since i'd say close to 2020 maybe 2021 uh, it's just the last bit where they're fine-tuning it in a specific way led to these chat like capabilities but the uh, the architecture itself was introduced actually when i was in med one so 2017 or around that time uh, the huge language model itself was introduced in 2020 and just the last bit where you're tuning it to sound more like a human was introduced in. um, I think about end of 2022, but I think there's a lot of misunderstanding where people seem to think that these models actually understand uh, what you're uh, asking them. uh, Which isn't the case, Uh, you can think of them as large parrots in a way, so the way these models are trained is you have these huge corpora of text you mask out certain words or you ask it to predict the next word in sentence and you do that over such a huge corpus that eventually that model kind of gain gains as a byproduct of this training procedure it kind of gains intrinsic knowledge about the world or intrinsic knowledge about language but it's still at the end of the day a language model in that it's trained to predict the next token or the next word in a sentence so it's not meant uh to contain knowledge or whatever it's just that's just a byproduct so a lot of the times you'll see that these models are prone to hallucinations uh, based on hallucinations, meaning that they they just make up facts. So Facebook released this model they called Galactica that they trained on PubMed, a bunch of other like scientific databases. And they're like, all right, this model is going to have you do your research, write out papers, et cetera. They took it down within a week because it was just making up making up a bunch of facts, a bunch of papers, et cetera. So these models aren't meant to be knowledge bases the way people are portraying them to be they're gonna replace doctors they pass the USMLE uh the fact that they pass the USMLE is because they were trained on USMLE questions so in a way they're imperfect search engines it's not like they have intrinsic medical not they do have intrinsic medical knowledge but not they don't understand medicine the way you and I do so they use as tools to write clinical notes um to extract uh, certain medical entities from documentation to make research easier, but I wouldn't go as far as to say they're going to replace doctors, they understand medicine, et cetera, at least in their current form.
0: Right, right. Because I saw something on National Public Radio where one of the universities tested it in law schools, where it made a trial law school essay and compared it to other students. And actually, uh, I think it got a C plus or something. It didn't get an A, but it still passed. It was a passing grade. Like you're saying, I think it just doesn't understand if it, but just trained on using certain words that it was able to pass.
1: Uh, just to put it in perspective, if if you want to test out what these models are actually, actually know, uh, I would test out the GPT-3 models instead of the chat GPT and try to have it complete a sentence. And you will see like there's no, there's no understanding of what you're saying. It's just, it'll just complete your sentence and just end it. And A lot of the times it'll just output uh, just, random stuff, or even racist, offensive stuff, because that's what it was trained on. It's just that last fine tuning step makes it seem like it understands you, but it really doesn't.
0: Great. So basically uh, schools uh, schools should should uh, rest and say maybe this could be used as help in writing research or essays, but it's not going to replace the student
1: doing their work and writing the essay. I think, I think it says more about our education system than anything else because if you can have a model just output an essay with let, let, let's not say like novel thought but still like output like an essay that's able to get a C plus then there should be a way to modify our education system to test how people think rather than uh, the tasks where we do in the education system today like memorizing the Krebs cycle etc
0: yeah, yeah yeah, it's transforming these days so finally so what, what do you think I mean have you? I just took two more questions I have for you. One is Have you heard of the company uh, Proximi? Uh, so, do you think there's a role of like AI and something like this where you're monitoring uh, surgeries uh, in other areas? Would AI be helpful in these situations?
1: I'm su- I would be surprised if Proximi isn't already working on this, but as a data store, data repository of uh, surgical videos, if they do have. A permission to use them for research i'm not sure what the legal implications of that are uh i'd be surprised if they weren't already working on these foundational models for surgery as well because they have such a vast repository of surgical videos from different uh from different hospitals across the world right so uh i'm sure they're working on something similar a lot of companies are because it
0: could be it could be used to train surgeons around the world too. to, to to do some complex surgeries uh, over time without having, let's say like some, some surgeons right now, like sometimes fly to different countries to learn certain techniques. And in that case, you can just do it while you're sitting in your own country and uh, learn
1: uh, some I actually many of
0: your abilities in a certain surgery if you're not doing enough of these surgeries.
1: Yeah, we actually have an ongoing project like that for surgical simulation using these models where it's like realistic surgical simulation based on networks trained on a variety of surgeries as well. Yeah, yeah. But mainly robotic for now, but we're slowly expanding to other subspecialties and procedures. So uh,
0: a natural question So, what do you think is the future of AI in medicine? Do you think AI will be a big thing in the next 10 to 20 years?
1: Oh, definitely. Uh, there's a radiologist here who's the head of the AI program. And he said something that I wholeheartedly agree with, that uh, physicians, or in his case, radiologists who use AI will surpass radiologists who don't. It's a lot like using the mo- the modern techniques in in any med- medical field. If you're not using modern technique that's able to augment capabilities, you're going to fall behind uh, the curve. And there are a lot of studies demonstrating that uh, AI alone uh, doesn't do as well as a physician alone, and both of them don't do a lo- don't do as well as an AI plus uh, physician approach. Uh, although there was a study last week that proved the opposite, but the majority of studies show that AI plus physician do a lot better. Uh, than either of them alone. So there's a lot of transformative potential. Um, I would say just at least have some passable knowledge about how these models uh, work because you don't want to have a company approach and be like, hey, we have this model that works great in the USA uh, and they implement for you in Lebanon, let's say, and it just does really bad because populations are different, disease distributions are different. So just having this just passing knowledge about how these models works, how they're how they're made, how they're trained, would just go a long way into implementing them correctly in our medical system.
0: And any advice you have for uh, medical students who are graduating after you right now, in terms of AI and how to approach this issue?
1: I don't I don't I don't know if I'm the best person to give advice, but what I tell my friends a lot of the time is just follow what you're passionate about. This ha- just happened to be what I was passionate about, and it paid paid off. But If you're just getting into something, because that's the cool thing to be into, personally, I don't think you might be successful, but I don't think you're going to be happy, which is more important. So, uh, not everyone is meant to program or train their AI models, but I think programming in general should just be a tool, just like learning to use a computer, learning to use word, et cetera, should be a tool you use or learn for your daily tasks but for ai in general if that's not your passion there's no reason to get into it just get like some passing knowledge and and, um and that's that's more than enough but for those actually interested in ai you you'll know what to do if you're passionate about it so do you
0: think one one last question that can just came up so do you think that doing your pre-medical education in the us helped Uh, build some of the foundation for you? Or if you had done it, let's say at AUB, you would have done the same thing?
1: Oh, done the same thing. Uh, I actually started programming when I was a kid. So it wasn't like going to the US actually opened that up for me. I was always interested in computers. My dad was a computer engineer. So growing up, I always saw him like typing on his computer, seeing like his cool black screen with green text flowing on it. So it was always something uh, I was interested in. I picked up my first programming book, I think when I was eight, nine years old, something like that. Um, I was making iPhone apps uh, in high school. I was making jailbreak apps uh, even before that. So it was always something I I was very interested in. So it wasn't like the U.S. had any specific impact on me. And the reason I got into machine learning or AI wasn't even because of Boston College. It was I was working on a personal project and I was using a very basic statistical approach just just to go into detail i was making an ios keyboard so it was a third party keyboard on your on your phone um that had special features that the regular keyboard didn't offer but apple doesn't give you access to the search cert- the next word prediction bar at the top so i had to implement that myself i was using a very simple n-gram model which uh, doesn't scale uh well if you're going into trigrams and stuff like that and it wasn't very accurate so i kind of googled around looking if there was any, any better approaches. And that's when I discovered neural networks and took off from there.
0: Great. So, uh, thank you. Thank you, Cyril for, for being on this uh, podcast and for discussing the role of AI in medicine. Hopefully people learned, uh, some things about, uh, the role of artificial intelligence in medicine. Also, I think, thank you for highlighting some of the role of chat GPT. Hopefully people will learn some more about it from this uh, podcast. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having
0: me.